0: morning, everybody. Good to see you and to be with you. And as has been mentioned, I hope, hopefully you've heard it at least once now, but this is long weekend, short Sunday. And so um, our our order of service is a little bit different than normal, and, but uh, we're staying with our series, The Apostles' Creed, and so my name is Nelson. I get a chance to uh, speak to us a little bit this morning from Scripture, and uh, we look forward to what the Spirit has to make real and available to us in this, mo- in this morning. So good to see you and to be with you. I've got something, something to show you up on the screen, kids. You might be interested in this as well. Um, does anyone know what this is? A, a keyboard, from, from the little one over here. I may have prepped her on that a little bit, but uh, so it is a keyboard. Any other names for it that you might know? Synthesizer, what else? A Jupiter 4, yes. Those are all the basically available, available answers. This is a Jupiter 4, it's a keyboard, piano, synthesizer, some people think is really awesome. And whenever I see an instrument like this one, I think I have a pretty good idea of what it's going to sound like. Can you imagine what this keyboard might sound like? I I just invite you to close your eyes for a moment and think of a sound that you think this keyboard might sound like, okay? So just take a few seconds. If it helps to close your eyes, just imagine what a Jupiter 4 might sound like. I'll give you a few minutes of stillness and then we're gonna listen to it. Okay, Jill. (whistles) Everyone's like, please make it stop. Others are like, no, do not make it stop. (laughs) I know that Stranger Things Season 3 is coming out July 4, and I can't wait for more of Jupiter 4. I was listening to a podcast recently where uh, a musician was talking about getting a chance to play with the Jupiter 4 in a studio with no one else around. And here's what she said. I plugged it into my guitar pedal setup, and I just messed around on it. And it's kind of nice to not have anybody watch you experiment as you're learning. There's no preconceived notion about what it's supposed to sound like or how you're supposed to play it. How many, if you had the sound in your head, did it resemble something like what you heard? Some of you know, like, what's up with the Jupiter 4. So you had a pretty good idea. Yeah, Zach Pick, I see that hand over there. Um, Yeah, and so, but Sharon Van Etten, what she's talking about here is the joy of play. The joy of play, which is something that the younger you are, you tend to be better at it. My daughter is blissfully free of preconceived notions when it comes to playing dress up. So I could give many examples of this, but here's one that features our whole family. Let me just give you a little tour of what's going on here. On your right, you have a slightly overweight, power clashing version of Link from Zelda. A very, very uh, last minute sort of costume idea uh, as the theme emerged with our family. On your left, you have a gorgeous elven queen with blonde flowing locks. In the middle, you have a beautiful fairy princess with a Queen Elsa tiara and sparkly shoes riding a horse that she named Pinto. So, kind of a mashup going on with that one. So whether it's playing a vintage keyboard or whether it's playing dress-up, it's Halloween time, it it takes a certain courage to embrace childlike freedom and joy. And that can be hard to access, especially for grown-ups. We have a ton of preconceived notions, don't we? Our minds are full of lists of supposed-tos. We know, we like to think we know what things are supposed to look like, to sound like. To be like, we have preconceived notions about how future events are going to turn out, like elections or how Game of Thrones will end. Now, one way to understand the Apostles' Creed, I would suggest to us, is as the undoing of preconceived notions. The Apostles' Creed is like the undoing of preconceived notions. I'll walk through a few phrases with you if you're not tracking yet. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now, if we examine our daily patterns and habits honestly, so often we do not live as though there is an all-powerful deity in charge of everything. Do we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? We don't always behave as though someone supreme and supremely benevolent made all of what we see and are surrounded by, and that someone made it for us. We take creation for granted, or worse, we treat it with contempt. I believe in Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Well, if there even is a God, we're not too sure he would have ever lowered himself to human status. Born of the Virgin Mary? Do I really need to say more? And on and on and on, and all the way through the ancient creed, the table of our preconceived notions is set, and then it's immediately overturned. So as people of faith then we're invited over and over again to confess belief, to trust, to live our lives as though things are not as they seem, to remind ourselves of what is real, what is really real. So we come to the phrase that we're believing into today. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, this part, of course, hinges on the belief that Jesus Christ, whom we call Savior and Lord and Friend, was in fact raised from the dead, and so became what Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But here's the thing. We, who are more than 2,000 years on this side of the first Easter, have the benefit of hindsight, right? People living the story in real time had preconceived notions. The women... Who came to the tomb with spices, ready to anoint their crucified Lord, only to be greeted by an angel asking them, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The disciples on the road to Emmaus, thinking it's all over, that everything's been lost, only to be met in the middle of their disillusionment by the Messiah himself. And of course, the disciple Thomas, who for very good reasons had his doubts. So did the rest of them, by the way and wanted to experience the physicality of Christ's resurrection by touching his hands and his side so to confess i believe in the resurrection of the body is to put our trust in yet another scandalous claim that invites us to lay our preconceived notions aside it's to align ourselves with the foolishness of god that according to paul is wiser than human wisdom it's to be foolish enough to say life is short and then you die and then you rise so we're going to consider today the resurrection of the body. But because it's long weekend, short Sunday, I assure you, it will be shorter than usual. But next week is kind of a continuation, and I get to do part two as we look at the final phrase and the life everlasting. So we look forward to unpacking a little bit more next week. I invite you to uh, bow with me in prayer. Let's ask for the Spirit's help, and then I'll invite us to confess the creed together. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the author of salvation, the beginning and the end, you are the one who makes things new, all things new, and that includes us. And so we, are, we confess our delight this morning in the fact that death does not have the final word, that you are renewing us, redeeming us, restoring us even now. We pray for the illumination of your spirit to understand in a little fuller way what I believe in the resurrection of the body may mean for us and what it may mean for us now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able and would like to, I invite you to stand. And let's uh, say that the Apostles' Creed together. There's three slides here. And as you'll see again, we're coming to the end. So join, me, well, join with me if you'd like. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So because it's long weekend, short Sunday, one main question this morning. So when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, what are we claiming to believe? When we say this part of the creed, what is it that we are claiming to believe? You don't have to have a whole lot of familiarity with the Bible to know that the final resurrection of the dead has been part of Christian teaching from the beginning. In fact, the Pharisees believed in a final resurrection long before Christianity even came on the scene. The Pharisees were adamant about it, whereas the Sadducees opposed it, and that's why they're so sad, you see? Throwback to vacation Bible school, those who know what that means. Yeah, not fair, you see. I know. The whole song just starts to come back, doesn't it? So there's evidence from an early date that there were people who had problems with this idea. They had preconceived notions that have been around a long time. So this is the background of 1 Corinthians 15, which offers the New Testament's most insistent argument in favor of the resurrection. So this part of the letter is written against those who would deny it. So I want to just offer us a little sampling from 1 Corinthians 15. Starting at verse 3, again, if you have chair Bibles, the page number is up on the screen, and you're welcome to read along with me. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Skip ahead to verse 11. So whether then it is I or they, those whom Jesus appeared to, this is what we preach, this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pause there. When you read almost any part of this chapter, it's hard not to miss that the fact of an afterlife in Christ was a big deal for Paul. It's a big deal for Paul. I love Eugene's translation of verses 19 and 20. He says, If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. But if we look closer, we see that what's being debated in this chapter is not merely a matter of life after death, but more concretely, the resurrection of the body. The Greeks, by and large, were into the idea of an afterlife. Socrates and Plato both taught it, as did most of their students. They believed the soul was immortal. They taught that when the soul is separated from the body, the body dies, but the soul goes on living. And they were also convinced that the human being's true self was the soul alone. So if that's the case, if my true being is only my soul and it has nothing to do with my body, then death ain't no thing. The corruption of the body isn't really worth fussing about. The Gnostic teachers said something similar, that what's immortal is the soul, a spark of the divine trapped in a humble body. The Marcionites, same thing. Life eternal was the release of the soul from the shackles of the material world created by God. In contrast, when we consider Christian teaching, when we confess I believe in the resurrection of the body, what we are not saying is I believe in the immortality of the soul. They're not the same thing. Far from it. So from early Christian teacher, for early Christian teachers, sorry, there were a few problems with the common belief in the immortality of the soul. We don't have time to unpack all of them. But the one reason or the one main reason Christians contended for the resurrection of the body was the need to affirm the positive value of the material. The positive value of the material. And that's where, as we walk through the whole of the Apostles' Creed, we see a beautiful holistic integrity. All the way through, we see the material world upheld as being of extraordinary worth. The opening part of the creed declares God as creator of all things, not just the spiritual world, but the material as well, maker of heaven and earth. The middle part confesses that God's Son has inhabited the world by becoming human himself, conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then the Son of God suffers and is crucified in the flesh. He dies as a man. He is buried in a physical tomb, and he is raised to life in bodily form and continues to share our nature, even in the glory of the resurrection. The last part of the creed announces that the spirit of Jesus is still present in the world. Those who believe share in that spirit's power and active presence. So the Holy Spirit doesn't live above things on some higher plane, but is here with us, in us, through us. The Spirit has made friends with the body so that resurrection life can show up already, here and now, in our everyday, ordinary lives. So another thing when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body that we're confessing, is both a future hope and a present reality. It's both a future hope and a present reality. So the resurrection of the body is not just something that we can look forward to someday, The momentum of resurrection life has already begun. It's good news that we can announce and remember and rehearse and live into right now. Here's how Ron Rollheiser puts it. The resurrection is not just something that happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago and will happen to each of us sometime in the future after we die, when our own bodies will be raised to new life. It is that, but it is much more. The resurrection is something that buoys up every moment of life and every aspect of reality. God is always making new life and undergirding it with a goodness, graciousness, mercy, and love that in the end heals all wounds, forgives all sins, and brings deadness of all kinds to new life. Amen to that. I want to try to paint a picture of why this is such good news and that it's not just for the future but for now. I came across a reflection that I've adapted from sociologist Peter Berger and I feel like it might be helpful for us. So, kids, adults, everyone, all of us know what it's like or can remember what it's like to wake up as a child in the middle of the night feeling anxious or scared, right? You identify with that feeling? Some of the boys and girls, you know what that's like to wake up in the middle of the night, you're anxious, you're scared. Maybe the child has had a bad dream, darkness surrounds, he's alone, feels threatened but couldn't name exactly why. And in those moments, the contours of trusted reality are blurred or invisible. And in the terror of the growing chaos, the child calls out for his mother. I'm not exaggerating when I say this, that at that moment, the mother is being invoked as a high priestess of protective order. It is she, and in many cases, she alone who has the power to banish the chaos and restore the benign shape of the world. And of course, any good mother will do so. She will take the child, cradle him in her arms. She will turn on a lamp, perhaps, which will encircle the scene with a warm glow of reassuring light. She will speak or sing to the child. And the content of this communication will invariably be the same don't be afraid, everything is in order, everything is all right. The mother's comforting reassurance, don't be afraid, it's all right, is in fact a profession of faith in God and in the resurrection. When a mother says these things to a frightened, nervous child, she is exercising faith just as surely, even if not as explicitly, as if she was saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. When a mother assures a child that there's nothing to be frightened about, she means it. And she means it without her even realizing it. Not so much on the basis that there are no immediate dangers to the child, but because she herself or because she is herself is able to protect the child as on the basis that ultimately everything is all right. What she senses, which makes her able to comfort the child, is that there is nothing to be afraid of, even if something should kill us or we should harm ourselves. Because at the very deepest level, we are all in the hands of graciousness and love and not in the hands of maliciousness and terror. Rollheiser again. To say don't be afraid and to mean it is to say that in the end, the power of goodness is stronger than the power of malice, that dead bodies come out of the graves, that all our mistakes will be forgiven, and that all terrors are phantom. That's the power of resurrection. That is what we mean when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The resurrection means more than just the fact that God raised the body of Jesus from the dead. It means that God's power to raise death to life buoys up every moment of life and every aspect of reality. We sit here because resurrection happened and is happening. The very atomic structure of the cosmos feels and knows that resurrecting power. That's why it pushes forward so blindly, it's held up by a hope that it can't understand which brings up another facet of this, that resurrection hope can't be understood. Who can understand it? It can't be explained. And even though bodily resurrection is one of the controlling undercurrents of the New Testament itself, it rarely addresses it directly. Read the Gospels. What you won't see is the writers trying to portray the resurrection itself. The tomb's already empty when the women and the disciples get there. The resurrection has transpired in secret. It's happened. Where? In the tomb? In hell? In eternity? Wherever and however it took place, the event has already occurred. And that's why followers of Christ then and now, you and I, are faced with a decision. And that's whether to believe or not. The closest the New Testament gets to explaining the resurrection is in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's come to that, back to that text briefly and consider a few verses. 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? How's this gonna happen? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, says Paul. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Super clear? What's he saying? That we too will rise in the same way that Christ is risen, but that we don't have a clear picture of what a resurrection looks like. So Paul attempts an illustration using the image of a seed. Our bodies now are like seeds and resurrection life is like the tree. So as we know, there is a massive difference between seed and tree. Should I mime this out a little bit more? Do you know what I'm saying? Here's a tree, I am a tree, here's a seed. They don't look alike they don't look alike, and you wouldn't be able to guess what the tree will look like just by looking at the seed, and yet their identity is the same. In a similar way, Paul says our mortal bodies, not just our souls, will be planted and then raised immortal in Christ. If this all sounds pretty mysterious, it's because it absolutely is. Paul again, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. Listen, he says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. in A flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. In the life that's to come, we will be the same identical persons we are now, and yet unimaginably different. Same and different. How exactly does Paul explain the meaning of the resurrection in this text? By not explaining it. He points to a seed and a tree. He leads us to the edge of our imaginations and says, see how they're precisely the same but totally not? Listen, it's a mystery. What can I do but offer something, anything different than that? It's a mystery, but it's kind of like that. So, when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, what are we saying? We're expressing a willingness to set preconceived notions aside. We are confessing both a future reality or future hope and a present reality. We are trusting from the deepest parts of ourselves that ultimately everything is all right. It's all right and it will be all right. We are putting our faith in a mystery That just as Christ has been raised, we too will be made alive in him and indeed are being made new even now. So, future hope, present reality, second and last question how might we live into that hope now? Three quick things one, affirm the material. We live into resurrection hope now by affirming the material. In your handouts and here up on the screen is a beautiful quote from Barbara Brown Taylor, and she says this, Human beings may separate things into many, as many piles as we wish, separating spirit from flesh, sacred from secular, church from world, but we should not be surprised when God doesn't recognize this, the distinctions we make between the two. Earth is so thick with divine possibility that it is a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. Oh, Barbara Brown Taylor. There are little resurrections happening all around us. Can we ask the spirit for the eyes to see God's life in our everyday? One way to affirm the material is to care for our bodies. Caring for our bodies, ours, others, humans, animals, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. I've got two bits of homework on this point. One is to listen to the episode of the Liturgist podcast called Embodiment. There's an episode called Embodiment in the Liturgist podcast. If you forget what I'm saying, just come and talk to me later. Hillary McBride has this amazing about five-minute piece called Dear Body, and it is essential listening. For bonus marks, listen to Sufjan Stevens' new single called Love Yourself. Pair those two things kind of in tandem and just go back and forth between them and you'll have an amazing week living into the material, caring for your body, caring for others. Much more could be said, but let's, we're, we're limited on time. So keep looking to Jesus is the third thing. Keep looking to Jesus. Resurrection hope in a Christian key is a social hope. And therefore, it's an embodied hope. And this hope centers on life with Jesus. So, I, we don't learn about the resurrection by discussing and speculating about the afterlife. We learn about the resurrection by contemplating the risen one, by trusting what's been revealed in him in Scripture, by practicing his way, by doing what he did. I'll give the last word here to Ben Myers, who wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed that we've been borrowing from. Ben Myers said, most of all, what we know about Jesus is that he is the philanthropos, the lover of humanity. And so the life that we await will be a life of love. It's good news. We can get on with that right now. We're going to invite the musicians to come, and we're going to enter into a, a time of responding without the communion table today, even though the altar is here. The light reminds us that the light of Christ is with us. We won't have the communion meal this morning, but we're going to respond with a couple of songs. So I just invite us to a couple moments of stillness, as still and as silent as it can get with all the kiddos in the room. It's just fine. And let's just prepare ourselves to respond together. I'll offer a short prayer in just a moment, and then we'll respond in song. listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. God, thank you that the work of resurrection is already happening. It is around us that is sustaining our lives enabling us to live in love as your spirit allows. Thank you for your spirit that indwells us, your spirit that cares about the material. Help us also to lean into the ways you're inviting us to express that love tangibly in real life, in real time, in real action. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Give us strength to live into this reality. Christ. Amen.